Welcome, dear listeners, to another fascinating episode of the London History Podcast, where we delve into the vibrant and diverse past of this great city. I am your host, Hazel Baker, a qualified London tour guide and founder of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Whether you're a born and bred Londoner or a curious listener, join us on a journey through time as we explore the city together. Each episode is supported by show notes, transcripts, photos and further reading, all to be found on our website. If you enjoy what we do, then you'll love our guided walks and private tours that we offer throughout the year, all bookable online at londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Subscribe now to never miss an episode. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review and rating to help spread the word to other history lovers. Today we have an exceptionally special episode for you that delves into the life and times of one of Britain's most indomitable spirits, suffragette Annie Kenny. Annie Kenny is not merely a footnote in the history of struggle for women's suffrage, she was a force of nature who defied societal norms and whose story can teach us a great deal about our diverse, rich tapestry that was the suffragette movement. Joining us for today's enlightening discussion is Kirsty Shedden, a qualified Camden and City of Westminster London tour guide who offers a suffragettes in Westminster walking tour. During this episode, we'll explore a range of questions aimed at illuminating the multifaceted life of Annie Kenny. We'll also discover how Annie navigated the rough waters of imprisonment, maintaining her resilience against the odds. So... Sit back, prepare for an enlightening journey back in time as we unravel the complexities, struggles and triumphs that mark the life of Annie Kenny. Let us commence. Kirsty, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Yes, I'm very excited to talk about Annie Kenny. Uh, she's a rather unusual woman, I think, for her time, uh, which makes her, you know, especially important to really talk about. So, as you said, she was a suffragette. Uh, So that made her a member of the WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union, as it was called. And she was a member of this from its early beginnings in Manchester, as in fact, founded by Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst in 1903. Uh, But Annie joined in 1905 uh, when the organisation was still very small and centred in um, Manchester. Annie, I think you're going to find, campaigned tirelessly for votes for women in the early 20th century. And she was also, um, she very much stuck to Emmeline and Christabel's vision of how that campaign should be won. Now, Annie was a working class woman. And we know that working class women joined the suffragettes and indeed other suffrage organisations. But their story is often lost. But Annie wrote a biography. Uh, It was called Memories of a Militant. And that gives us an insight into her history. So she hasn't entirely been forgotten. Um, She also features in Sylvia Pankhurst. Sylvia Pankhurst was another sister in the Pankhurst family. Uh, In her account, The Suffragette Movement, which was published in 1924. So she was an integral part then. She was right in it. And even titling her um, autobiography a militant, it shows that uh, action is required. It's not just words that matter. 
Exactly right. So she was born in a small village near Oldham in Lancaster in 1879. She was the fifth of 11 children. I mean, huge families in working class were very common at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But most of those children, all of those children grew up. Uh, Both her parents uh, worked in the local cotton mill, however. So they weren't they weren't wealthy, but they did seem to be keen, particularly Annie's mother, to uh, their children getting on in the world and encouraged them to take advantage of what was now compulsory education. So in mm-hmm. 1870, it had become compulsory for children to go to school. And Annie began school at the local, the local school when she was five. But when she was 10, uh, she had to start work, as did all the children, um, because the family just didn't have enough money to survive. So she too went to the cotton mill and she was a half timer so this meant she spent the morning working in the mill and the afternoons at school but by 13 she was working full-time at the mill and you know just an example of the conditions that she had to put up with she herself lost a finger in an accident there wasn't the health and safety or 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 anything like that and she was working 12 hours a day it was a very grueling life um for what was somebody who was only had only just become a teenager Mm. Her mother was a great influence, however. Her mother knew how to read and she read them stories. She quoted poetry. Um, And one of the things that I think was nice was that she told Annie to see the best in anyone and the worst will gradually fall away. Be kind to others, tolerant and sympathetic. So it shows the kind of family that Annie was brought up in. And in fact, the family was very close. She wrote letters to her sisters when she was away campaigning and Uh, In fact, two of her sisters uh, ended up joining the uh, suffragette movement themselves. So she was a recruiter as well then? She was definitely a recruiter. She was a member, as in fact were probably more working class women than we appreciate, a member of the newly formed Independent Labour Party. And she went to meetings and she heard... uh, various speakers. And in 1905, Christabel Pankhurst came to uh, one of the meetings and she heard Christabel speak about votes for women. And this somehow um, resonated very strongly with Annie. She could see, I think she could understand how votes for women would improve the lives of uh, working conditions for women, which she was already now just in her early 20s, uh, very passionate about Mm -hmm. um, improving them. In fact, she stood as one of the first women uh, for election to join her local uh, union committee of the card and blowing room operatives. I have tried in vain to find out (laughs) what you did in the card and blowing room. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this is all to do uh, with the textile industry, which was very, very significant in that area of of the country at the time. Um, She heard them. She was inspired to join and she was invited to tea uh, by the Pankhursts. Um, And I think probably at at this stage, the Pankhurst felt that, you know, having a working class woman who uh, was very interested in joining their organisation would be a valuable sort of, you know, maybe publicity um, uh, tactic, you know, to be talking about uh, somebody like her. Uh, But she suggested 
when she met them, she wasn't shy in coming forward, that they set up speaking platforms at local fairs across Lancashire and to spread the word. And Christabel and Sylvia both joined her in this and the young women, you know, uh, toured around the country uh, um, talking about votes for women and telling them how this would be the way they could secure improvement in their lives. Um, we've got a little bit of information about um, how Annie looked um, and uh, how she spoke, partly from Sylvia and also we have got photographs of her. Now, one thing that's interesting is that Sylvia felt that she looked older than her age and that mm. she had, uh, you know, wrinkles prematurely and, and that sort of thing, which just shows really the hard life that she had already led. But she had a loud carrying voice and a very direct way of speaking, uh, which really got her message across. It must have helped, wasn't it, that listening to her mum telling stories at the fireplace and that, hearing that, you know, spoken word. And it must have been really quite liberating for her to be able to be accepted by other people who wanted the same thing. I mean, the importance here, like you were stressing, is when you say votes for women, it's not just having a vote it's having the opportunity to change not only your life but the, ch the life of families your families um, and future generations as well that there, you actually have the opportunity to do that whereas before absolutely nothing exactly right uh, and at the mercy of, of, of um, you know people employers husbands and that sort of thing no no recourse to change to change your life uh, for the better the other thing about Annie, and again, you know, the movement tried to typify her as a sort of spokeswoman of the working class, but she's very unique. <laughs> you know, she's not shy in going up to the Pankhurst and saying, you know, tell me more and, and getting herself invited to tea and start to become part of their world. And um, her first militant action happened in 1905 with, uh, with Christabel. Uh, so what was happening in 1905 was that the Conservative government was really um, not in a very good position. They'd managed to really offend most areas in society, most groups of people in society. And so it was widely expected uh, that the Liberals uh, would get in to, the, uh, to government. And uh, so uh, the political parties by the end of 1905 were out and about uh, talking to people uh, to drum up support for an election, which they expected would come in the following year. So um, at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester in October, Lord Grey and Winston Churchill were speaking, OK, in support of the Liberal Party. And um, the women asked them, they were probably shouted, <laughs> are you going to um, make women's suffrage a government measure? What are your views on votes for women? And they were ignored. So they unfurled a banner with the slogan votes for women and were thrown out of the meeting. Uh, now, Christabel had got her degree, oh, she couldn't practice in law, and she knew uh, that in order to get arrested and therefore publicity, uh, more action was called for. They'd just be kicked out on the street. So she spat at the policeman. Apparently, according to Sylvia, it was a very pathetic spit. <laughs> but nevertheless, it was uh, written down as one. So they were arrested and charged with assault. 
Uh, they were given the option of paying a fine or going to prison, and they chose prison. They knew right from this early stage that what they were after, deeds not words, was to get publicity for the cause, and then more women would hear about it and more women would join. And it, it, uh, would um, join. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, Kenny uh, was released and uh, Christabel was released after a short sentence because they chose prison. Uh, not to pay the fine, uh, by a crowd of supporters. And this was the first of 13 times uh, that she was sent to prison. So what were prison conditions like? Um, because she's going back 12 times. It's not like she was going back because uh, she, she liked it, did she? No, exactly. And uh, so, in fact, on, on the walk that that I do, uh, we do pass a monument, we'll be um, standing in front of the monument and talking about the suffering that women were prepared to go through uh, for their beliefs. And this um, monument, the Suffragette Memorial, um, recognises that and try and get us remember. Because it's very easy to say, oh, you went to prison and, and then you got released and that sort of thing. But prison at that time was absolutely appalling. And of course, for a working class woman, it was even worse. They had three divisions in prison and the third division was the harshest. And that's where the working class women went. And there was no, as particularly in this early stage, there was no... Um, thinking that Annie was not working class because she wore a shawl and clogs to denote that she was working class at some of these um, actions. And you were locked in a small cell. It'd be very dark. There was only light outside, you know, if it was um, during the night. Um, Conditions were filthy. The food was was really poor. Can't describe, you know, just basically gruel and bread. There were no vitamins in there couldn't really um, survive on that for longer. And in 1909, suffragettes actually began hunger strike in protest at these divisions. They wanted to be in the first division, where obviously got more creature comforts, but also uh, because this was where political prisoners would be put and they wanted to be recognised as uh, political prisoners. Now, Annie herself went on hunger strike uh, at Mm -hmm. one time and it's probable that her health, which she suffered from in later life, was actually caused by this experience um, and the force feeding uh, that the government <clears throat> introduced uh, as a response to this, uh, more of which later. Absolutely. So so just to, to, to clarify for some of the, the, the listeners with this force feeding, uh, there are accounts of um, the suffragettes talking about how there was a, there was a, it was like a, a, ma- a mouthpiece to force their mouth open, wasn't it, Kirsty? Yeah, or maybe through the nose. It depended on the doctor. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. So this rubber tube would go through the nose. Uh, if they were forced through the mouth, um, sometimes they because it's metal. The the teeth would be broken as they're forced to to do it, and then this pipe shoved down uh, the esophagus. And then what kind of food sort where they was pumped into them was it semolina yeah it was kind of like a gruel of 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 something or other you know sort of oats or semolina or or something of this this nature again you know okay it had some calories in it but it didn't really have any nutritional value either so the point was not really to uh keep people surviving for long um just really to um you know add more cruelty to the uh to the sentence i think or 
Exactly. Yeah, the physical abuse there. And then, and then one suffragette, she um, she actually died from her st- stomach exploding from this, this force. But then this also led then to the outcry of the conditions and leading then to the, the Cat and Mouse Act. That's right, yes, the Cat and Mouse Act. And Annie, um, moving on, <laughs> I'm going to do a little <laughs> bit yet, but um, in 1913, um, she was one of the first women to be released under this Cat and Mouse Act. Um, in the later part of the campaigns, they got very, very militant. And one of the things that the government felt, um, Reginald McKenna, the then Home Secretary, was that suffragettes were getting too much sympathy with the force feeding because uh, Christabel, uh, Emmeline, they made no secret of it. They advertised what was happening. And this caused many more people to be sympathetic to the movement. So mm-hmm. in order to uh, kind of stop this, force feeding was kind of wound down Uh, to a certain extent and so that if a suffragette went on hunger strike and got really really weak instead of then force feeding them they were let out uh, until they recovered and then they were uh, brought back and re-arrested and obviously the suffragettes caused as much difficulty as possible on the re-arrest aspect (laughs) Um, and there's Added benefit for the police as well, because they can see who collected them, where they stayed, who visited, you know, all their close associates and all their connections. Um, They get a broader view of uh, who actually is involved, not just the prisoner themselves. Yes, because they were after the money. They were after the Mm -hmm. money uh, that the suffragettes had. They had an enormous amount of money. And unfortunately for the police, they were audited every year. (laughs) <laughs> and their accounts were always in order. So, <laughs> so how about delving into the, the key moments that occurred relating to Annie and also the broader um, suffragette movement? What were they? Okay, so as I say, the suffragettes began in uh, in Manchester in 1903, um, and in 1905 they decided to start making inroads in London because, after all, that's where Westminster is, that's where the government is. And Annie first came down to London, actually, before 1906. She stayed with Sylvia, because Sylvia was studying art down there. And she was introduced to working-class women in the East End. And she immediately recruited some of those to the cause. But we're still talking about, you know, a very small group. Um, But in January of 1906, after the landslide election results for the Liberals, Annie's work intensified she began working full-time for the WSPU down in London as a paid organiser. She got £2 a week. And she and Sylvia formed the London Committee of the WSPU. Uh, Annie, at this time, spent her a great deal of time in the East End uh, with the because this was seen as a sort of centre, if you like, of, of working-class um, area. And at this time, the suffragettes were quite focused on working-class women. On February the 16th, uh, she and Sylvia booked Caxton Hall. Now, Caxton Hall is somewhere where we'll see on the walk. And this was t- it was it had big meeting rooms in it. And they were going to hold a WSPU meeting and listen for news of the King's speech. They were going to try and hear, um, they'll send a runner over to Parliament uh, to find out if there was any word of votes for women on the in the King's speech. And... Uh, 
um, Emmeline Pankhurst came down and she said, but how can we fill it? We haven't got, you know, this is a hall for 700 people. Um, And this is the reason why Annie mobilised women from the East End uh, to attend the meeting. And so about uh, several hundred of them came. They came to St. James's Station and Mm -hmm. then they uh, went off to Caxton, Caxton Hall. And uh, this was it was an amazing meeting, really, because this began the women's parliaments that happened in subsequent years. And they would always be listening out for votes for women being mentioned on the king's speeches. And they were always uh, very disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, in a short space of time, Annie was becoming well known, certainly in the small suffrage circles. And she was also um, being, you know, paraded in, in the press with publicity. And she was also being entertained by rich and the poor. And she'd really kind of left the mill, in my opinion. She'd left the mill behind a little bit, certainly kind of, you know, emotionally. Uh, So the next few years, they just show us that Annie's spontaneous. She's determined, like the leadership, uh, to get votes for women on the government's agenda. Okay, so this is this is typical of Annie. You know, she just rushes straight in. So they decided to send a deputation of women to Downing Street uh, because they'd been writing to the new prime minister, Campbell Bannerman, uh, to arrange a meeting to persuade him to put votes for women on uh, government business. And this had all been refused. So they decided to show up. And uh, so a group of them, including Annie, um, went off to Downing Street, which to us today seems quite amazing, isn't it? You can't possibly get anywhere near number 10 today. (laughs) And so anyway, one of the suffragettes knocked on the door of number 10. Two detectives opened the door and told them to go away and closed the door. And then one of the other ladies, she attacked this thing which she thought was a door knocker, but it's actually a handle, another handle on the door and opened it. Um, and at the same time, Annie, wearing her clogs and wearing her shawl, I have to say she did wear those selectively. She didn't wear them to all engagements. Mm-hmm. She got on top of the Prime Minister's car and started a speech about votes for women. And so she and the others, obviously, were all arrested. Um, but disappointingly, uh, Campbell Bannerman didn't press charges because he didn't want the publicity. It was sort of a bit embarrassing, really. Yeah. Um, so that failed. But well, his idea failed as well, because it all got reported in the newspaper. They didn't, you know, fail to inform the press that this activity uh, was going on. Now, something um, kind of you would imagine would have shifted for Annie um, in about 1907, because the uh, suffragettes had been quite close to the Independent Labour Party. One of the reasons they had a breakaway group was because they'd been disappointed by the uh, new Labour Party's attitude to votes for women. They kind of um, couldn't persuade the Labour Party to take up their cause in the way that they wanted them to. Uh, So there was kind of a a split. And really from this time onwards, more middle-class women were targeted to be members But Annie, despite her background and her sort of seeming passion for working class women, she decided 
that that policy um, would work better. What they were going to do was they were going to be anti-government. So anytime there was a by-election or something like that, they were going to go around the country and campaign against the Liberal candidate. Mm. That's how they, it was going to work. So she stuck throughout uh, thick and thin uh, to the cause and the ideas that Emmeline and Christabel held about uh, what should happen, what would be the best way to achieve votes for women. In 1907, she went to Bristol and she set up the WSPU's West of England branch. She stayed there till 1911 and she organised a number of highly effective protests um, she disrupted political meetings, as usual. <laughs> uh, she got a woman called Mary Phillips to attack Winston Churchill at Bristol train station. And in 1911, when women were being encouraged to avoid the census, uh, she got a group of women to travel around on a caravan so that they were of no fixed abode. <laughs> um she, in fact, spent many of her weekends at a house called Eagle House, which was owned by a woman called Mary Blathwaite and, and her family. And uh, so she was able to sort of have a little uh, rest, if you like, from her uh, busy schedule. But over the years, um, also when she returned to London, many indignities and violence were meted out against her during protests. Uh, and in 1910, she came up to um, join the women in the Women's Parliament. And she was, like many others, thrown to the ground, struck on the chest um, by the police during a march to Westminster. This is one of the things that you, um, you, you don't hear, is the violence against suffragettes. Yeah. You hear about the violence that they caused and the, the bombs. You hear about, um, obviously, the, the, there was the death of Emily Davison, so th- th- threw herself in fr- knocked down in front of the King's horse. But there was actually a riot at her funeral at St George's in Bloomsbury where people attending, not not attending the funeral, there to, to watch all, what was going on, they were throwing bricks at those suffragettes attending the funeral. And we don't often hear the the violence that suffragettes um, received themselves. No, exactly right. And 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 clearly, the force feeding was a major um, issue there. The way they were manhandled in prison uh, by female warders, mm. often as well. Um, no opportunity was missed, really, to to push people to the ground. It was this kind of whole idea that. You know, women's place was in the home, that women were delicate, you know, working class and upper class women. But when they got out of line, uh, the way to sort them out was to uh, offer violence towards them, you know, for daring to stir out of of their proper uh, places. Um, But undeterred, between 1912 and 14, the movement became ever more militant. A number of things which I'd talk about during the war had happened uh, where hope had been raised, if you like, that the government would finally introduce uh, some legislation. But by 1912, it was absolutely clear that the Liberal government were not going to introduce any votes for women or allow any private members bill or or time for it. Um, And uh, so... 
Christabel and Emmeline decided it was no holes barred now, which did lose them quite a lot of support. But Annie mm. um, was in full agreement with what they were doing. Um, and uh, this speech that she made in 1913 uh, gives you a little flavour of that. Um, she said, you know that every woman ought never to go out without a hammer in her pocket and never to go out with at least touching one pillar box. You who cannot break windows, for goodness sake, get on with something else. Everyone can do a pillar box. For you must remember that that's the one thing that touches the pockets of the people. So um, she was advocating window smashing there and mm -hmm. also arson attacks on pillar boxes. And these were some of the um, many activities that the lone wolf, I think you would call them, um, episodes, uh, lone wolf ac um, actions to try and keep the cause in people's minds. Uh, so you can tell from that she was actually a very competent speaker, you know, because she's making these speeches herself. And she's, I've got a couple of other things as well. So um, on another occasion, she said in her defence, the law may be stronger than I am, but if I may not change the wicked law that holds in bondage the smitten womanhood of this country, I will at least die in the attempt to change it. And uh, in 1912, she defended herself in court with the speech, The Right to Rebel. It actually had a title um, uh, where she shone light on the injustices of the suffragette sentences um, for things like property damage and, you know, things that didn't really hurt anybody. Yet pointing out the leniency of sen sentences uh, that were given to men who had caused sexual violence, uh, you know, possibly even, you know, with very young, young people. So again, um, emphasising this, um, you know, two-facedness, if you like, about how women should be treated and how men should be treated and what constituted a really serious crime. So you mentioned 1914. So this is where we have World War One come into play. Um, what um, can you speak a little bit about um, Annie's role during World War One and also maybe how her uh, focus shifts around this period as well? When World War I broke out, 1914, they immediately stopped their activities um, and decided that they would support the war effort. And Annie agreed with this. She did follow, um, follow the line that Christabel and um, Emmeline took on, on practically every issue. She stuck by her you know, original commitments, if you like, to the WSPU. Um, and uh, her... Her life was broadened in a way uh, during this time. For example, she went to uh, the United States on a lecture mm -hmm. tour, uh, which wasn't um, just, you know, just to do with uh, women's rights. She, when she got home, she encouraged women to become munitions workers and she became quite close to David Lloyd George. So she really, you know, not quite oh. going back to what she was before, but she has really, um, you know, become more involved in the political um, side of things. And uh, so, yeah, her life kind of um, changed. And it was a sort of, in terms of votes for women, it was more of a, a kind of waiting game until 1918. And then, of course, in 1918... 
the representation of People's Acts gave women or some women the vote for the very first time. But you had to be over 30, householder or the wife of a householder or occupiers of property with an annual rent of £5 or be a graduate of the British University, of which there were not that many at the, at the time. And I'm not sure, you may be able to tell me this, whether she actually got the vote, because I don't think she would have been qualified to have the vote herself. And I've let everywhere, and it's not uh, not mentioned. I mean, this is also worth, I suppose, pointing out that not all men had the vote either um, until then. So there were limitations. There was a very strict um social structure um not just within the 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 people that you spent time with but also you know how you behaved or expected to behave uh what you wore or didn't wore the clothing the colors the type of material everything was quite uh, transparent on that score and then world war come comes and women are then moving into um roles that are traditionally reserved for men you know uh, from munitions factories to nursing uh providing their capability and and their worth also in contributing to society and that then results in public opinion shifting you know men coming yeah. back from first world war wanting their jobs back and uh, women have been doing it so there's like now suddenly who are we there's that feeling yeah. of especially with men of in terms of we are what we do, but the women have been doing who we are. So yeah. th- there was a big challenge there. So, yeah, as you mentioned, that um, the representation of the People Act in 1918, I mean, over 30, you had to have certain property qualifications. And I don't know if Annie actually owned anything. No, um, I wouldn't have thought so unless she'd you know, been given it um, by somebody else or, or whatever. Um, yeah, and then and then of course ten years later, then um, the the franchise being extended to all women over the age of twenty one, uh, and that then equalises that voting age of um, for men and women. Um, yeah, so it all kind of I mean, without them fighting before the First World War, I don't think there would have been the conversation to have afterwards. Not necessarily, and I go into quite a bit of detail on the walk at the end of that, you know, thinking about whether the suffragettes' actions helped or hindered um, the introduction of of the vote for women. Because, of course, you know, it's always said that women who worked during the war, that was their reward, but it wasn't the reward for the munitions workers (laughs) at all. So um, they could do the work, you see, you know, this is that that point. There's a story, isn't there, of um, uh, if you're wanting to uh, domesticate or train um, a baby bee elephant. And have you heard this one? No. And uh, so you you have the baby elephant and instead of putting him in a, a, a pan, you use a big stake and you tie the, the rope, the chain to the stake and you pull, plummet the, the stake into the ground. No, no matter how hard this tiny baby elephant tries, he cannot pull the stake from the ground. And then as he grows older, he knows he can't do it. And so you could use a teeny weeny little pin as the stake and he won't try and pull it because he tried so much earlier on. Yeah. So the conversation of the, the, the with the suffragettes of actually having that conversation and that thought and realising that, you know what, I'm not the only one. Why can't we have the vote? And then suddenly yeah. doing the work of men going, well, if we can prove our worth, 
then uh, what's the argument against it? Yeah, certainly. And he didn't really uh, continue much after the war, Um, uh, possibly because she did get married and and have a son. She wrote her memoir, she would write some pamphlets, but she basically kept herself out of the public eye. She did um, work hard for Christabel's um, parliamentary campaign in 1918 because Christopel could stand for election mm-hmm. after that representation of the People's Act. You, uh, Women were allowed to be stand as MPs and they set up the Women's Party and she was unsuccessful, Christopel, but she, it was close. It was very close. She didn't lose by a margin. And uh, so she kept up, she kept up with, with friends really like Christabel, like, um, other mem- other former suffragettes. But over time, uh, both her and I think some of the other suffragettes, um, their legacy dwindled. And, and when you read Sylvia Pankhurst's book, you get all the names, you know, she talks about all the different people. But um, again, you know, it's very important for us, uh, you know, to remember uh, women's history, really, and, and what part people people played and Annie died in 1953 but as I say she did experience long-term health problems probably um, brought about by the hunger striking and uh, force feeding mm-hmm. that's her her story really and a uh, very few of the um, things that she took part in there's loads more <laughs> I bet there is and how does the story of um, Annie Kenny help us understand the complexities and nuances of the suffragette movement, especially when we're discussing like class and um, regional differences as well. Yeah, well, I think Annie was, um, uh, yeah, she was a bit unique, as I was saying. She was she's sort of individual and her own person. She wasn't just a sort of, you know, and you often find this with sort of exceptional people that there's not always a huge reason that you can find for them to be... Um, uh, so prominent in things, but she very much understood uh, the working class in the north. So, for example, you know she was a textile worker, and the cotton mills were somewhere where she knew people, and uh, she knew the type of people, and all of that kind of thing. Whereas coming back to the East End and working in the East End for a few years, that that was a different kind of working class, mm. and she. Um, I wouldn't say she struggled, but she it, it it was she needed a different approach, if you like, uh, with those women. And I think as well, some of the uh, wealthier people, um, you know, they all had servants in their homes and things like that. So they treated her to some extent um, like a pet, I think, at first, <laughs> um, you know, and said, oh, she's so wonderful. And, that, you know, that kind of language yeah. uh, towards her. But I think it seems to me when you read, read some of the stuff that over time she just became a, a, another suffragette who was leading the movement. I mean, she was put in charge in 1912 of the whole movement by... Christabel Pankhurst because Christabel was in danger of arrest so she went to Paris uh, and mm-hmm. uh, Annie went to Paris every <laughs> every week once a week uh, to receive her orders but nevertheless Christabel trusted her to be running the movement she'd become very experienced and 
and knew what she was doing. Uh, so to some extent, she didn't represent her class anymore. It's interesting what you're saying about um, how she kind of disappears, but everyone's only got a certain amount of fight in them. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, if she's done the, rec- uh, if she's been very active and then she can see the next bout of women coming to fight for the future, then isn't that part of the, the progress of being able to step back and go, right, I have trained you, off you go and, uh, and, and do your best. Yeah, and there's there's also, though, the idea that maybe further research would reveal more details about about her life afterwards, but they're not necessarily written down or we don't necessarily have access to all of those things. No, or it could just be the same old story of falling in love, getting married, and husband uh, not allowing really her to do anything. <laughs> oh, no, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I think she, I think she was still, um, you know, sticked her to her own um, own self in that respect. <laughs> Maybe time will tell. <laughs> so I suppose my last question for you, Kirsty, is um, if Annie Kenny was alive today, what aspect of uh, modern society do you think she would actively campaign in um, or against now? What would be her thing, her jam? Well, I think I think she would be quite horrified, actually. I think anybody um, coming back from that period of time, because although, you know, working conditions and all of those sorts of things, you know, have improved for people, uh, the busyness and, and the cars and the pollution and all of those kind of things uh, would, I think, uh, be quite s- central to people coming back. They would really kind of notice that. Although I suppose you did have kind of like the smog of London, but I think there would be a real shock as to, um, you know, how people are living their lives. I think, though, she probably would be quite keen on social media. I was just going to say she wouldn't be. And then I thought, well, no, but she was all very interested in having her photograph taken. She wore those clogs and shawl if necessary. So I think she might have been posting all the time (laughs) and Mm -hmm. keeping everybody... Influencer, <laughs> yeah, in, you know, informing people about what was going on. So I think she would have approved of that. Um, but mm-hmm. I think she would be distressed if you were if she was coming back to the future, thinking that things would be a lot better uh, to see um, food banks and 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 such like that um, still, mm-hmm. you know, in society today. So yeah, interesting. I don't know what she'd made of modern architecture either and the modern buildings and, and whatever, but um, the whole area around Parliament would have seemed very familiar to her. <clears throat> I think that's a good thing. <laughs> All right, Kirsty, thank you so much for today. Um, hopefully everyone listening um, has got to know Annie uh, Kenny a little bit better. And as we've mentioned, Kirsty does uh, public guided walks of suffragettes in Westminster, but you can also get together with a few friends and family and book a private tour. Kirsty, thanks very much. Thank you.